Hey everyone, this is Derek Bros with the Conscious Resistance Network. Today is the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks. And in honor of the 20th anniversary, I am presenting to you a very important interview with Mr. Peter Dale Scott, who is a Canadian diplomat, author, researcher, and someone you definitely want to know. He's 92 years old. He's been at this a long time, investigating the JFK assassination, MLK assassination, the role of big oil uh, in the drug war and international geopolitics, and obviously with 9-11. Before we get into the interview, I'd like to give you a little bit of background. I woke up in the end of 2009 going into 2010, and 9-11 was a huge part of my journey. I believe first I randomly came across a person who handed me a 9-11 is an inside job sticker that I put in my music room for probably almost a year without really thinking about what it meant or looking into the phrase. When I finally did decide to go down that rabbit hole, it was very much the beginning of my awakening to realize that we were lied to about September 11, 2001, that it wasn't Al-Qaeda that attacked us, that it wasn't Osama bin Laden, and that there were elements of the U.S. government, the Israeli government, the Pakistani government, and the Saudi government who were involved in this operation, that people benefited financially from 9-11, that the surveillance and police state grew because of 9-11, that the global war on terror, the excuse to bomb anyone in the world, that grew after 9-11. So many of the things that have become normal in our world of 2021 started with the event of 9-11. And I wanted to take a moment to give Mr. Scott an opportunity to share his analysis. He has so much to say, so much information, and sometimes it can be difficult to follow, but I encourage you to really tune in, to listen and re-listen when you need to, to hear his words because he has so much to share. The other thing I wanna add is that if you are new to this topic, consume this interview with Mr. Peter Dale Scott Go look up the facts and the data that he references and do your own digging. But if you want to have more of a kind of beginner 101 um, look into 9-11, I recommend some of my past mini documentaries uh, on 9-11 Truth and on the investigation into 9-11, particularly my documentary that came out in 2015. And that will be linked below this video and, of course, can be found at theconsciousresistance.com looking at the documentaries page. So without any further ado... I hope that those of you who are new to this topic, many of you who might have just started to wake up in the last year, the last couple years because of the state of our world, will decide that it's worth looking back 20 years ago and understanding this event of 9-11. I was 17 years old when it happened. I know some of you were three, four, five, maybe not even born just yet, but if you are one of those folks, please understand how important 9-11 is in everything that we are facing today. We have to expose the lies of 9-11 just like we need to expose the lies that we are dealing with today in the present moment. So thank you for your time. I present to you my interview with Mr. Peter Dale Scott. Mr. Peter Dale Scott, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Uh, glad to have this chance to come back to a very important event in American history. And by the way, an ongoing one. You know, we're still in the shadow of all this. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I want to talk with you is because I feel like you have so much to add to the, the conversation. So uh, for those who are unaware, you have authored several books, the ones I think are going to be relevant to our conversation today, The American Deep State, Big Money, Big Oil, and the Attack on U.S. Democracy, 
The War Conspiracy, JFK, 9-11, and Deep Politics of War, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, and then, of course, Drugs, Oil, and War. These all relate to the topic of 9-11 in different ways. Um, but I want to let's go back to post 9-11, September 11th, 2001. As I said, you were, as far as I remember, one of the first intellectuals to really openly question the events of 9-11 and the war on terror. Um, can you take us back to that time, your initial feelings and thoughts when the attack happened and what led you to start to question the official narrative? Well, I want to go even further back uh, to the 1990s where I said in print somewhere, I can't find it. But I started talking about deep events. And at that time, I was talking about uh, the Kennedy assassination and Watergate and uh, Iran-Contra. But I, I um, had written one or two articles suggesting that they were linked. And one of the underlying links uh, that was important was the... Uh, uh, emergency planning, which is a factor in my accounts of all three of those events. And I predicted that there would be one every decade or so. And I think the year I said that was 1996. And then, lo and behold, in 2001, we had 9-11. And from the outset, really, I, I said this is another deep event. What do I mean by a deep event? I mean an event that is... Uh, major, has a big impact on our country, is um, the way it's handled is to be attributed to marginal elements, like a lone nut in the case of Oswald, or uh, the, uh, the 19 Arabs in the case of 9-11. But the most important of all, I think, the one that should really concern us today, is the ongoing involvement of emergency planning networks, which by the time of 9-11, we now know had a name. Uh, the so-called Doomsday Network, built by the, uh, the uh, well, mostly by the Pentagon, costing about eight or nine billion dollars. This is not a small operation. The hollowed out mountains near uh, uh, Washington, which is where Cheney immediately went to and stayed for 90 days with 100 people supporting him. And what they did for those 100 days has never been reported, but I would say pretty confidently that they came up with the Patriot Act, which has sent us into two major wars, one of which we hope is over in Afghanistan, but I'm not sure it really is. Uh, and uh, Thanks to 9-11, we know that uh, COG, Continuity of Government, was very much, it was implemented on that day, uh, and it allowed uh, for, uh, well, it was characterized, I think, accurately as really suspension of the Constitution, and it was followed almost immediately by two states of emergency, both of which are still in force. Uh, one has to, they have to be renewed every year. And I predict that next month in September, I bet you we're going to see Joe Biden renew yet again the state of emergency that was implemented or decreed after Watergate. I mean, excuse me, after 9 11. So, uh, 
in a way, uh, although it was an appalling event with thousands of people killed, 9-11, but at least I had the consolation of saying, well, I wasn't so crazy to say that we can have more of these deep events. And uh, I don't want to get to the end of the broadcast at the very beginning, but uh, 9-11 was now two decades ago, but we've had another deep event, and that was the events of January the 6th of this year when people stormed the Capitol. And one of the first questions I asked myself was, uh, COG implemented continuity of government. Was that a part of the January 6th story? And just very recently I've learned, yes, COG was implemented on that day. And yes, it appears to me at any rate to be a significant part of the full story of what happened on January 6th. So I hope that we don't just talk about 9-11 today, but uh, by getting deeper deeper into 9-11, set up the background to understand what happened on January 6th. Absolutely. I think it's, it's definitely relevant for us to make the connection, especially because, um, Mr. Scott, I mean, I'm 36 years old. I was 17 whenever 9-11 happened. But there are going to be people in this audience who might you know, might not have even been born yet, or maybe we're, you know, one, two, three years old. And so they still don't perhaps take in the full understanding in the context of 9-11 and and the role that it does play in things like January 6th. So we'll absolutely make that connection. Uh, So what was it, let's say, let's get a little deeper for you with 9-11. At what point, you know, I know you said pretty quick on that you felt like this was another deep event, but at what point did you start to feel like, okay, now the evidence is matching my intuition, you know, and, and what was, the, the first or the strongest piece of evidence or clues that you got that felt like there's more to what we're being told about 9-11? Well, the, uh, the first thing that I would say is that it became apparent right away that uh, the government didn't want to tell us very much about what really happened on that day. And when there, uh, the, the Democrats in the Congress uh, said there should be a commission to investigate what happened, on 9-11, this was two or three years later, uh, Cheney and Bush, the president and vice president, uh, I should put them, the, the real order is the vice president, who was the man in control that day, and then the president, they, they pushed very hard on the leaders of the Democrats not to have that commission. And when two of them in particular held out, Daschle and uh, I forget the other, Then we had an episode that's never mentioned now in the papers, but was very disturbing. There were a series of of anthrax letters sent out. These were lethal. People died. And this was an attack on Americans from America uh, in which people died. And they were sent to Dashiell. Oh, Ted Kennedy was the other. (laughs) And after... This very obvious threat to Daschle and Kennedy, we got the 9-11 Commission, which just like the Warren Commission investigating the Kennedy assassination was 80% um, or 50% uh, investigation and 50% cover-up. And I, my, my books essentially are examining the glaring omissions and even lies in the 9-11 Commission report. But let's go back to that anthrax. 
you had anthrax that is mailed out, which purported to be coming from Al-Qaeda. But just from the internal evidence, it was clear that it wasn't an Arab that was writing those things. It was an American. And uh, there's never been, a, and it was the, there was a lot of evidence tracing them to Fort Detrick, which incidentally was, the, that's the army um, uh, biological weapons lab, which was incidentally a source of the false stories that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, meaning bioweapons like, like anthrax, which in fact they had had at one point, but it had destroyed and the Americans knew that, but didn't reveal that, use it as a pretext for the Iraq war. And while we're on this, I should say that both the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war were being planned intensely immediately before uh, 9-11 and were the, the, the Afghan war came directly out of 9-11 in response to it. And the Iraq war was decided back then in 2001 that they should postpone that for the time being, but it was in effect agreed to at the same time as well. And we got three national decision directives, the NSD 7, 8, and 9. We don't know what 7 and 8 were. You ask me how I think when you see how much is secret, then that's what gets someone like me very curious. And the more secretive they are, the more I feel we should look into these things. Now, NSD 9 was the one which planned for the actual invasion of, uh, of Afghanistan. Maybe we'll say more about it or maybe not. It wasn't published until, I think, uh, October 27th. They took a long time uh, hashing out the details of it. But it was uh, approved essentially one week before 9-11 on September the 4th, I believe. And it was actively discussed again by a committee of... Uh, not principals, but their deputies, a second-level committee in the government, on September the 10th. They were discussing how to invade Afghanistan the day before that we had the event which was used to justify the investigation, the invasion of Afghanistan. So this is a very big story that involves the heart of the American war machine. That's one more book I wrote, which I think is also relevant. Uh, to this study. Uh, but of course, I can't, we can't ask all these readers to read four books. So they should just listen to this broadcast. So, okay, let's go a little further. I mean, obviously, as you were just pointing out, a big part of questioning 9-11 comes from, okay, there's all this, this secrecy. What, what's the secrecy about, right? What's the, you know, what's the um, kind of motive back behind the scenes? But also, uh, everything that you were just pointing out, it would seem to indicate some sort of planning or at least awareness that something was going to happen if you want to you know give them the benefit of the doubt and say hey they knew something was going to happen they just took advantage of it you know there i around the 9-11 truth movement i noticed over the last years i started getting involved in 2010 2011 that you have folks who kind of think that well they allowed it to happen you know or they made it happen you know there's sort of different variations on that theme either the government, they, whoever power players yeah. made it happen or they allowed it to happen. What, what do you think about that? 
Yes, uh, let it happen on purpose or made it happen on purpose. My own position is in between. Uh, my own theory is that the uh, at the heart of 9-11 is what I would call a tolerated conspiracy, that uh, there really were some Arabs who were planning to uh, fly, learn to fly uh, passenger planes and to capture them. I don't think they ever planned to fly them into buildings because that involves a degree of competence that was way, way more than what the Arabs who were training at, uh, to fly these planes ever aspired to. What the, these Arab terrorists were used to doing was capturing a plane and flying it somewhere and then holding the, captive, the, the plane and the plane captives for ransom or uh, failing that to just, as if you just want to be very destructive, fly the plane into the ground somewhere and the Arabs would become martyrs along and everyone else would be killed. Uh, but there was a tolerated conspiracy which was then manipulated and maybe manipulated by different people for different ends. I talk about three conspiracies on 9-11. And the, first, the, the, the next one is a conspiracy to have these planes with the Arabs on board or not. And that, to be quite honest, I don't think we know. There's a lot of obscurity about the passenger list when they originally released them. There were no Arab names on them. So there's a prima facie case for saying that there were no Arabs on the planes. And then they covered that up by, you know, a, a different list. So I think then the, 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 there were people in the, in the I keep calling it the Cheney administration, it was the Bush-Cheney administration, and Cheney in particular had already been part of the uh, project for the new American century, which said that America needed a forward strategy. And what that meant in practice is that America needed troops wherever its oil investments were, uh, and Cheney is at that time was the head of Halliburton, which was the oil development uh, in corporation, which had helped build huge installations for Exxon and Chevron in Kazakhstan. And the subtext to 9-11 was that Cheney believed passionately that most of the oil reserves in the world were in Central Asia and that America should go in there and the job of the U.S. government was to be able to support them and defend them. Therefore, you needed troops along the uh, southern edge of Central Asia, and specifically first in Afghanistan, but more centrally and importantly in Iraq. All of that underlies what 9-11 was about. And so now you have Arabs training to fly planes. Good. Let's take that conspiracy and use it to explain what we really want to do, which is a version of what um, the Pentagon had earlier called Operation Northwoods. This was back in the time of Kennedy and Cuba, and the army in particular wanted very much to go into Cuba. And so they came up with a plan which Kennedy wouldn't approve which was to have false flag events where you would organize something that looked as if it was a Cuban operation, uh, but was in fact an American one, 
Well, of course, Cuba had nothing to do with 9-11, but the idea was still there. You organize uh, planes going into buildings and make it look as if the Arabs did it. That is the higher level of conspiracy. Now, I didn't say anything just now about the buildings going down. I believe that the collapse of the Twin Towers was not part of this high-level conspiracy. I think that was the people who owned the buildings themselves, who took out extra insurance and had six weeks of so-called repairs on the buildings, which I believe was a, a pretext for having people go in and install uh, control. Uh, materials for a controlled implosion, which is what happened there and happens quite often with buildings when you want to destroy them, and which is what a number of uh, broadcasters said happened there. It looked like a controlled implosion. That is an aspect of 9-11 that uh, I do not include in the plan to get the, the what I would call the Northwoods-type plan to have planes go in. I think the people who planned for the planes to go in expected the buildings to withstand. Uh, well, they would suffer damage. The Pentagon suffered damage. The Twin Towers were very solidly constructed. Uh, they were built to withstand, specifically to withstand being hit by a major passenger airplane. And somebody who was a member of that company, Kevin Ryan, a very decent guy, I've met him, he's a straight arrow, very honest, very upright. And he said uh, the uh, the towers didn't go down because of the planes, because we built them so they were standard. Well, his company does a lot of business with the U.S. government, and they fired him. They fired him for defending the company, and I believe for telling the truth. That's what you rest on the risk of doing if you start investigating a deep event. So I want to, you know, what you were outlining there is basically illustrating the fact that this 9-11, no matter which angle you look at it, you know, whether you're talking about the towers and how they may have collapsed or, you know, how that might have happened and the different players in here, it seems that this isn't just one single conspiracy. This is sort of multi-layered, multiple players. And yeah, let's just say three. First, you have Arabs conspiring to capture planes. Uh, doesn't say anything in that about flying them into buildings. Then uh, you have people in high places, many but not all of them, uh, inside the uh, the uh, what I call the belt, the Beltway uh, agencies, the CIA and the NSA. I think particularly perhaps here in the CIA, but also even the FBI. Um, they say, well, we can do something that this country needs, which is to convert to a more warlike uh, and less democratic thing to deal with uh, international terror and, to, and in the case of Cheney, more specifically, to protect U.S. oil assets. I should mention, by the way, the U.S. is a very prosperous country. It's one of the richest countries in the world, not the richest per capita, but still very rich. And it's rich not because of all we're producing. It's rich because of the, the role of the dollar in the world economy. And the dollar has had the strength it's had in the world economy 
not because of the strength of the U.S. economy, which in fact is not very strong, but because of the importance of oil and gas in the world economy. The U.S. dollar should really be called a petrodollar. It is only valuable as long as third world countries who don't have oil needs to need to buy dollars in order to buy OPEC oil because oil from OPEC, thanks to the Saudis and, and encouraged by and thanks to the Americans, uh, OPEC oil is denominated in dollars. And if you're an OPEC producing company country like Libya, and you decide, like Gaddafi, uh, to stop selling your oil for dollars, well, look what happened to Gaddafi in, in 2010. And by the way, that wasn't, uh, that was under the Democrats, that was under Obama. Both our parties in the two-party system are very obviously committed to doing what it takes to def defend the petrodollar, which means defending, defending U.S. dominance of oil, not necessarily for our own use, but for to protect its status that most of it is sold for dollars. Because if we don't do that, then we're all going to have to adjust to a radical diminution in our standard of living, just the way Britain had to do after World War II. And the British Empire could no longer defend the British pound. So there's clearly there's clearly motiv uh, financial motivations involved in uh, the 9/11 attacks. You know, different people who stood to benefit and people who did benefit. We could talk about the uh, military-industrial complex, of course, the push for the war on terror. You could talk about the oil mm -hmm. as you have. Um, I know that uh, James Corbett, researcher James Corbett, he's done a documentary on 9/11 trillions and sort of tracing some of the money. So there's clearly those motivations as well. One other note that I wanted to bring up to you that I've heard you mention before is, can you talk a little about, in relation to 9-11, post-9-11, how the, the Cheneys and the Halliburtons and the Rumsfelds of the world, how they benefited with, from these attacks? Okay. Members uh, of the Bush administration. You've really brought up two issues there, and I'd like to deal first with the question of unknown financial interests who profited hugely from 9-11 because you had a very conspicuous pattern of people selling short the stocks of the planes and some of the other institutions that were involved. Selling short means that you sell the stocks now because you anticipate that they will be much, you could, you will only, um, you'll, you'll deliver the stocks that you sold. You don't own the stocks. You're selling them before you buy them. And you anticipate that the stock will be much cheaper when you buy them. And that was very, very true of the major airlines that were American Airlines and, well, let's just say, for example, American Airlines, uh, because uh, they took a huge loss and uh, their stocks went way down. And it's been documented. You don't hear about it in this country, but abroad. You, there are Swiss experts who have published uh, uh, mainstream articles about the very conspicuous pattern of informed short-selling of these stocks. People who had inside knowledge knew that the attack was going to happen. Nobody thinks that these were... Uh, 
Saudi Arabs who were not don't have that kind of sophistication. These were international people who knew it. And there's there there are articles I won't refer to them, but and now a very good book by a German called Lars Schau, which I hope will be translated into English soon, which thoroughly document this. There's no question that there were financial interests in what was going to happen. And now the second part of your question is, how about the Cheneys and the Rumsfelds? And I would like to look at them both before and after 9-11. Now, if we start before, uh, I was mentioning earlier the importance, I mean the primary importance of COG, that you have what they, the army called the Doomsday Network, where you can discuss things and the rest of the government doesn't hear you. It was planned as a, uh, a plan for survival if there was an atomic attack which would decapitate America, and that's why we hollowed out those mountains, etc., where Cheney went after 9-11. But by 1994, the Americans had more or less, they agreed that, that there wasn't a major risk of atomic attack, and so they kept the network and they kept the planning for other purposes, which was whatever the government considered to be an emergency, and that was made official in a, in a Reagan executive order in 1988. Well, the interesting thing about uh, the planning for COG, it wasn't government planning. This is why I talk about a deep state, and I, you know, I don't get into the U.S. papers very much, but I got briefly in last year as the first man to apply the term deep state, first person in America to apply the term deep state to America. Uh, and uh, the deep state was planning for this benefit to the deep state in the form of COG. The planners were not all in government. Two of them were Cheney and Rumsfeld. When, as soon as Reagan uh, became, there had been planning before, but when Reagan became president in 1981, he set up a public-private committee in 1982, and two of the most important people on that committee were Rumsfeld and Cheney, who planned for COG for 20 years before Rumsfeld and Cheney, now in the government, were the people who implemented it on 9-11. And note that Bush did not implement it because Bush was not in Washington. And one of the first things that happened under COG, which is part of the way it's gone, one of the few things we know about it, was that the president and vice president must not be in the same place. So because Cheney was in Washington, Bush was kept out of Washington until 3.30 on that day. And by the time he came back, Bush, Cheney and Rumsfeld, between them, had implemented most of the permanent or the, the, the seeds for the permanent changes in our country, which uh, Bush wasn't allowed to take part in under the terms of COG. So one of the amazing coincidences that you have to explain about 9-11 is that this key moment, the implementation of COG at about 10.30 more or less 
on the morning of 9-11 was implemented by the two people who had been planning it for 20 years or 19 years. Uh, now, what then happened afterwards is that we got a whole new America, and I'm just going to spell out some of the big consequences that are so blatant that uh, you don't even think about them. You just think it's America. No, it's post-9-11 America, one of the biggest. And by the way, when I spell all this out, I'm obviously very opposed to the way that 9-11 was implemented, that we shouldn't have had those attacks. It does not mean I'm an opponent of everything that happened as a result. I think it's true we did need better a, a better apparatus to deal with terrorism. And uh, I think there's been overkill. I think we've done far too much to take democracy out of the picture. But uh, that doesn't mean that everything that's happened is bad. Look at some of the things that happened. Perhaps one of the biggest is we now have a Department of Homeland Security. They had been planning for this before, but it was brought into an effect in 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 response to 9-11. And there is some shady sides of that that I don't care for. Uh, one aspect of uh, COG planning that goes back to the 1980s was planning for rounding up not just uh, a, a few Arab terrorists, but masses of people and putting them in concentration camps, some of which were left over from World War II. And they had an exercise for doing this under COG back in 1984, Rex 84, never, of course, publicized in the papers. But they uh, spent, I think, $400 million. There was a 10-year program to refit these concentration camps in this country. And I think the, the bill of just one year was $400 million. So this... We, this has never happened. We haven't been rounded up. I can tell you as an anti-war vet, uh, I, I mean a vet of the anti-war movement, I'm not a vet at all, but in the anti-war movement, I'm talking now about the Vietnam War, we knew that there were plans to round us up for those camps, and we more or less expected it to happen and were prepared to have it happen. You know, a, a country that rounds up its citizens because they oppose a war is not that unusual. I mean, the really unusual thing about America is that you can oppose a war in this country and do it effectively enough to help stop a war, which happened in the case of Vietnam. So I say all of this pro-America, we have a good system of government, not a bad system of government, even though it does do things like plan for these camps. And we know that there were these plannings. Another thing that happened as a result of 9-11 is that um, the U.S. Army didn't have a, a, a defined role in uh, governing America. It did. We, we set up Southcom to govern South America and Centcom to uh, be a power in Central Asia. But there was no such power command for America until 9-11. And then they set up NORTHCOM. And since then, Ameri the American Army, well, all three services, but primarily the Army, 
have uh, been involved in um, in uh, planning. There are so-called fusion centers, which uh, take part in the surveillance of people like you, uh, Dennis, and like me. Uh, and uh, the, the, the FBI has always done this. And then after the Kennedy assassination, the CIA wanted to do it too and was very big in surveillance during the Vietnam War. But since 9-11, the Army, the, well, primarily the Army, but the, the Pentagon is also involved in the surveillance of dissidents. So you can see these are not small changes. Uh, some of them were authorized by the Patriot Act, and I think we're, there's now a move under Biden to revise the Patriot Act, or there will be. But I think it's equally important to stop the end the state of emergency. Nobody's frightened that al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is going to do something to America now. So end the emergency, and then hopefully we'll get rid of these fusion centers. Oh, and there are private corporations involved in these. This, is a, this, didn't, this part didn't start with 9-11, but got a huge boost. Um, that something like 70% of the U.S. intelligence budget, which is enormous, and we don't even know how big it is, uh, but it's huge. And 70% of it goes to private corporations like SAIC and, um, well, this is the, the one I write most about. I, I'm not remembering its name right now, but, but these are big-time corporations, and they are involved in these fusion centers. And I don't like the idea that a private corporation which makes more money when it says there's a threat is involved in determining how serious, how important it is to surveil people like you, Dennis, and like me. That that shouldn't be the case. So although I generally approve that we had to have a Department of Homeland Security, there are these little details of it which I don't approve of and I would hope to see terminated, but I don't expect until there's a, a greater awareness of them that you'll see either party take up this aspect of uh, getting out of the, what we're now going to call, there was a, for years, there was a post-Vietnam syndrome, which deterred the army from being able to invade more than very small little countries like Grenada, which it used to overcome the post-Vietnam syndrome. And now we're going to have a post-Afghan syndrome. They're already talking about it. But I, what I really want to see is to end a state of the, the a world condition where America is responsible for about half of the armaments in the world and grossly outarms not only itself but its allies like Saudi Arabia, which it, and uh, and the United Emirates, which it counts on to help support the U.S. defense budget and develop new planes because. Uh, the uh, it, it's the budget, it's the defense budgets of all these countries that are supporting the the uh, arms industry in America today, which is you know um, oil, arms, and drugs. Those are the uh, 
three main supports for the U.S. economy, and two of them shouldn't be there. Arms and drugs both shouldn't be there. We're not going to talk about drugs today, but it's part of the story. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's my surveillance of what happened to the Rumsfeld part of the economy. Really, the economy. Rumsfeld was in a when he was planning for a COG, he was head of a pharmaceutical company. And Big Pharma, my book should really have said Big Money, Big Oil, Big Pharma, uh, because Rumsfeld wasn't just in there by accident. But we won't go there today. Yeah, he has a whole background um, working in the pharmaceutical industry. So you mentioned earlier that one of the manifestations or I guess the kind of outcome of 20 years since the war on terror 9-11 and the conspiracies around 9-11 is new deep events, you know, ongoing what some might term false flags or just deep state events as, as you call them. Uh, and one of those that you point to is the Capitol January 6th of 2021 this year. And what we are told is an insurrection. And uh, now that that event and the language behind it now being used to start talking about domestic terrorism. Uh, you know, there was arrests of people at the Capitol. There was arrests of people that were accused of trying to kidnap a Michigan governor last year. Now we find out there's FBI informants all over that, which is sort of yeah. following the pattern for 9-11. It's the same playbook is what I'm seeing. But as you mentioned, now we are coming full circle and the Biden administration now seems you know, kind of geared to expand the Patriot Act or at least redirect it to the homeland. Talk to us about your thoughts around the Capitol and how this maybe marks a new stage in this war on terror. Well, I can't talk about January 6th until I talk about what's been happening to America generally since 9-11 and how it is that America could one of the most more educated countries in the world could elect somebody like Trump, who uh, is a, a liar. I mean, that, just start there, that we've had to deal with false information coming out of the White House. And that's what my book, uh, the paperback edition of my book, The, uh, the American Deep State, is about. Um, you know, for I have to contrast where we are now with where things were before 9-11, where you had a U.S. establishment that was committed to being a foremost military power in the world. And uh, there were always people who dissented. You had the John Birch Society. Uh, the, so, so when I talk about the deep state, uh, I don't mean by the deep state what the papers mean by it today, following what Trump himself means by it, which is just the CIA and the FBI and Washington, uh, the unelected parts of Washington. Uh, that That's part of my deep state and an important development in it after World War II when you got the CIA and NSA for the first time. But the dissidents were at one time, the John Birch Society, quite marginal. But this business of running a war economy for, since World War II, and that's what has happened now for a century, we've operated a war economy. It's not, it, it, 
in the short run, it was good for the unions, uh, made a lot of money for uh, people who worked for the war industry, but it, it didn't diminish in the long run class differences. It began to increase them because there are many, many people in decaying industries who are not being taken care of at all. And this has created great dissatisfaction with the government. And we must understand, even if you don't like Trump, and I don't like Trump, that the Trump movement and the Trump supporters represent an authentic backlash in this country to the misperformance of the war economy. And so we have a split now in the country that is not going to go away. It's not attributable to one man. It's right there in the, the shortcomings of the economy itself. And so we're going to have to deal with it for, for a long time. It may get worse before it gets better. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm taking a long time, but I'm slowly going to get to where I want to get to. And that is that uh, when Trump was elected, he more or less immediately defined himself on TV as the enemy of the, of the swamp in Washington, and then he started using the words deep state, the enemy of the deep state. That's not altogether false. But in my deep state, he is representing what used to be the marginal element, the John Birchers, against the dominant Council on Foreign Relations deep state, which was already long since the beginning of Reagan, being opposed in Dallas by a, a counter Council. Council on Foreign Relations is the big banks, the big money, Wall Street. But since the 1980s, you've had the Council on National Policy uh, in Dallas, very secretive, uh, clearly there to organize people against the CFR. And uh, I think that Trump is one of the products of that counter-planning. And uh, you had, you know, very uh, conspicuous outsiders like the Koch brothers who ran the, the largest privately held corporation in America and opposed to the planning by the oil majors and so on. They were always moving in a different direction. And then Trump gets elected. And then on November, when in November of 2020, he is not reelected. And the man, Trump, is in serious trouble because if he knows that if he doesn't get reelected, he runs a big chance of being indicted. But this is not a personal problem for Trump alone. There are also uh, these counter-interests. I'll call them CFR as the Council on Foreign Relations. For shorthand, I'll say CNP, the Council on National Policy. That's only a bit of the total complex of people who backed Trump from the deep state. There, were, there was a large coalition supporting him because he was promising to cut taxes for the rich. And that meant that traditional CFR people who were greedy, uh, the whole county of Greenwich in Connecticut is very rich people who work on Wall Street and represent big money. 
and they were pro-Trump in 2016. Probably not so Trump pro-Trump by 2020 because Trump was making real trouble for the country. Now, what happened on uh, January 6th, in my view, is a deep event because something was allowed to happen which should not have been allowed to happen, which is the one of the most heavily defended buildings in the country, was overrun by a mob who, using bear spray and uh, flagpoles, uh, flag um, and there were two opposing reasons or two opposing sets of people who wanted something like this to happen. And first of all, of course, the Trump supporters, and we're going to the, the Jim Jordan in the Senate and uh, so on, who really wanted to overthrow the results of the election. There was clearly a coordinated conspiracy to overthrow the election. And, uh, you know, the phrase stop the steal was invented by a man called Roger Stone. I've met Roger Stone, and I may say very, very, very rarely in my life have I met somebody who after 10 seconds I felt was somebody evil. And Roger Stone was one of those people. Because he's so and so proud to be evil. I don't think he's a really major power in this country, but I think he is part of the story of January the 6th, uh, because I, I believe he was in consultation with the White House on that day, and we know he was very much in touch with the Proud Boys, who were supposed to have been the spearhead of, you know, it was, this was an organized attack. It wasn't a mob in the ordinary sense. It certainly wasn't a riot in the ordinary sense. It was a well-organized plan to invade the um, the uh, capital. It involved shock troops. It involved people who were wearing body armor on that day. In other words, they expected, they expected to be in a fight. And one of the people who was wearing body armor on that day was a senator who spoke at the rally that Trump spoke at before the thing. He said he thought it was going to be peaceful. Well, if he thought it was going to, I'm talking about, he's congressman now. I shouldn't have said that. He wants to be senator. Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama was speaking at the rally wearing body armor. If he thought it was going to be peaceful, why was he wearing body armor? He said, I think he knew very well that when he was back in Congress, it was not going to be peaceful, and it certainly wasn't. So that's conspiracy A, which is to get Trump back into power. But then there are people who want to deal with this problem. We now have militias which are spreading in this country. I don't like the militias. So Conspiracy B, I don't disapprove of in the way I disapprove of conspiracy A, but I still think it's a conspiracy. And you mentioned the plot, for example, to uh, uh, to kidnap Governor Kidmer. That's a symptom that something has gone wrong in a major way in this country, that, uh, that uh, the FBI has to be worried that governors of our states are going to be kidnapped. They penetrated a uh, Trump-like conspiracy 
but they didn't nip it in the bud. They let it get very close. And that's a problem the FBI always has. You have to let something develop. Otherwise, you don't have any excuse to arrest people. And the, the FBI was actually part of the planning for the kidnap. They had two informants involved in the planning to kidnap Governor Kidmer. And one of them was helping out with, uh, I, f I forget how, but he was part of the plot. And uh, in the end, it was stopped. And we're all, and this takes people on the left who are traditionally anti-FBI say, well, thank goodness the FBI stopped it. And I myself have to say, thank goodness they stopped it. And maybe this was the only way to stop it. And now just use that kind of thinking and apply it to January the 6th. Conspiracy B is to let enough of it happen to give you a pretext to arrest people and round them up, round them up and try and put a big dent in the militia planning. It's not just the Proud Boys, it's the Oath Keepers, there's a third group. And of course, Trump was encouraging them. He actually said, you remember in one of the debates, well, in the debate that he had with Biden, um, I, let me say to the Proud Boys, stand down. That's a good piece thing for him to say, and stand by. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Sure, are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing. Not from the right so wing. So what are you? What are you? you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right boys. Like white supremacists and right proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. He said. Trump said on national TV. Stand to the proud boys. Stand by, meaning wait till you're needed. Well. They were needed for conspiracy A on January the 6th because they were the first people. They were the, the spearhead, the, the shock troops who broke the windows and got people inside. Doesn't necessarily mean they were the top people in the conspiracy because I think there was a lot of planning, coordinated planning with members of Congress and with the White House on what should have happened on that day, a lot of which didn't happen. And here now we come to the mystery element in January 6th that nobody's talking about, which is continuity of government. I said to my, I asked myself the question, really on that day, is COG involved here? And I learned uh, about three weeks ago, yes, they, it was involved that day. There's a, a Fort McNair in southwest Washington and COG planning called for all of them to go. And I think there was even a couple of news reports that key members of Congress, maybe including Pence, had, had been relocated to Fort McNair. And of course, Pence was, uh, he says he was not relocated, uh, but that means that he dropped out of the planning. You'll notice that what was a key event on the stopping of Conspiracy A was that three people all agreed 
that something should happen on that day and that was the confirmation should proceed as required by the Constitution. Those three people were Nancy Pelosi, who's a Democrat, and uh, Senator McConnell, who of course is a Republican, and Vice President Pence, who was the mystery man who no one knew how he was going to go, and he went with the establishment. And thank you, Vice President, ex-Vice President Pence, because that was the right thing to do to save America in the, as a democratic a form as we can hope to see it in the years to come. Now, all of those people were communicating, I think, on a network. Well, they couldn't use a government network because Trump was part of the government network. I think it was convened on that day by Vice President Prince, which meant by implication that the president was excluded and key members of Congress, and both the most key members were Pelosi and McConnell, they were included. So I think it was thanks to 9-11 that you got an early agreement that nobody was going to go to Fort McNair they were going to stay in that con in Congress. The um, National Guard would come uh, not too soon from con con conspiracy B point of view and not soon enough from, uh, well, you know, conspiracy A didn't want the National Guard at all. They wanted Congress to be taken over. Uh, what happened was, you might say, a victory for conspiracy B, for the for the the mainstream establishment, the CFR, the big money people, and that is my uh, very quick analysis of what happened on January the sixth. Does that make any sense to you? And do you have any questions? Uh, it does make sense to me. There's a couple of points I'd like to make. First, I appreciate you bringing up. You mentioned this, uh, the Council for National Policy, while you were kind of setting the stage for what's going on today. And I think that is definitely a big blind spot in a lot of um, researchers kind of uh, um, data. Specifically, people are more familiar with the Council on Foreign Relations or maybe the Trilateral Commission and some of those type of groups. Yeah, but yeah. there's there's less awareness around the Council for National Policy. Yeah, which is because they're very much more secret. Exactly. You know, so I, I myself have, I, I have written about the CNP. I think I have it in the, I could check, I think it's in my book that you wrote to 9-11. I don't have very much to say because they are very secret. Because yeah, so I, they, they are planning and strategically over a long term mm -hmm. to, and this, by the way, goes back to World War II. I mean, there have always been in America two kinds of capitalists. The global capitalists and the financial interests who see America's greatness and its role in the world economy. And there are people, uh, my friend Franz Sherman did a book about this. There are the people who are the uh, Make America Great Again, which is a slogan, of course, that goes back to the John Birch Society, who want a national America that stays out. They're more in the spirit of George Washington, I have to say, you know, stay out of entangling international agreements. Um, I think they're farther from the spirit of Washington because I think they're less democratic. But um, they, uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit of uh, truthful because 
I do want America to be globally involved. I think I'm not, you know, globalization is something that's going to happen and it's not all bad. But uh, I do want to take the military side out of it. Uh, I think that, and that's what I don't like about Biden, by the way, that Biden is gearing up to make China the enemy that the war machine needs in the place of Russia, which is not important enough now to be the enemy that the war machine needs. So here, that's why I'm I'm not totally anti-Trump. Trump, you know, what we did in Afghanistan, what Biden did, get the troops out, it's not his idea. He's fulfilling an agreement that was essentially made and agreed to between Trump and the Taliban, which was a good agreement. And of course, uh, and I'm not sure Biden was wrong here, but he didn't observe the terms of the agreement because by that agreement, we would have been out by May 30th. And for whatever reason, I'm not faulting Biden here. I don't know the reasons, or I mean, I can't assess it. I can imagine the reasons, but I don't know which was the dominant one. Uh, and all this horrible fighting that we saw recently, well, fighting is almost not the word, just speedy takeover. There were deaths, but not the kind of deaths that you normally would expect. Um, that was in the period when Biden was not observing the Trump agreement. It was on the last few weeks, so to speak. Now, I'm, I'm talking so much here. Your question was a little bit about the CMP. Well, no, so you, I think you answered that question. I just wanted to make a couple points and we'll start to move to the, to the next section here as we wrap up talking about 9-11. Two things that I, I wanted to bring to your attention because I know you've said that um, you know, you're, you're still writing more, you're still, still writing books. And so I know you don't keep up with uh, every single announcement, but I'm going to share on the screen just for, for yourself. And I don't know if you've seen this, but just a couple of days ago on the 20th of August, the FBI released a report and they said that they have found scant evidence that January 6th was the result of organized plot to return the overall, uh, overturn the presidential election. They said, of course, they have made more than 570 uh, arrests and they believe that the violence, uh, but the FBI believes that the violence was not centrally coordinated by Trump or far right groups. Um, obviously, they're not saying that there were no violence happened, but you know some of the the people who point to January sixth as a deep event or as something different than what we're being told uh, sort of saw that that admission by the FBI as um, as maybe vindicating in, in them in, in some me, light. Tell me that story again. Can you put that story sure. back on the screen? Sure, sure. I will. So this was just reported by Reuters. I mean, I want to comment on that story. I'm putting it up right now. Yeah, it was uh, it was published by Reuters, and um, so on August by Mark Hosenball. Yes, well, I'm not going to go into details here, but I would make a general comment. Sure. I said at the very beginning that deep events are attributed to marginal elements, and that was the result of the Warren Commission that concluded it was a lone, disgruntled nut. The fact that he was pro-Kennedy was not mentioned by them. They blamed it on a disgruntled Marine. And the the 9-11 Commission blamed it on 19 anti-American Arabs. And Hosenball was writ, wrote a story back then which supports this marginalization of what happened. I... I don't think I was smart enough to have predicted that Mark Hosenball would have written this story, 
but it makes total sense to me that he would write this story. And I will make a confident prediction that when we get a commission or whatever we get that investigates January 6th, let's start calling it 1-6. Because if we say 9-11, then, and this is a very, I mean, I haven't begun to go into the points of comparison between 9-11 and 1-6. There are many, many, many of which the role of nine of CLG is only one. But in 1-6, it's going to end up, I predict this to being attributed to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and maybe Roger Stone. And there, I will say, that is another corroboration. It's a deep event because what went on was much deeper than that and probably involved elements between the White House and Congress. How much of that we're ever going to hear about in an official report, I don't know. All right, I appreciate you bringing that point up. And yeah, I mean, the reason I wanted to bring that is just to sort of pad what you're saying with some evidence of like, there's there's a lot of elements going on here. There's the FBI claiming this. There's You can look at the arrests of the people that have happened. And as you mentioned earlier, there were some people who were, you know, had flagpoles and bear mace and things of that sort. But overall, this was not some armed insurrection takeover of the US government. Sure, some people probably really did want to stop the count. But the idea that this group of people overwhelmed, you know, the the, the capital and that there was that the government didn't see this coming and these kinds of things, it, it does ring of 9-11. And to me, it's it's like right as we're around the time of the 20th anniversary, they have an, another kind of narrative to continue to play out. And like you said, with calling it 1-6, it almost sort of makes it simpler for people to catch in their minds. 9-11, 1-6, you know, they, they want to plant that seed. And, and you see, Dennis, what's going to happen is that um, the traditional left, the anti-war people who by in history have been anti-FBI, anti-CIA, this is going to make them this is going to make them all say, well, thank goodness we have an FBI because they stopped these militias. Thank goodness we have a CIA because they were uh, and and the Pentagon. Thank goodness we have uh, COG because it was under CO. Well, I don't know the details here, whether it was the inserts. Something had to be proclaimed. I don't know if it was the Insurrection Act or whether it was continuity of government, but something sent the National Guard in there. And so the, the left are going to be tempted to say, well, thank goodness we have a militarized country that can send in troops to stop militias from taking over our country. So it, it serves a lot of purposes for the deep state, my version of the deep state. I agree with that 100%, and uh, I appreciate that analysis on that, and I look forward to diving further into some of the things you mentioned there. You know, I, one other article I'll pull up as we, we start to wrap up on 9-11 is I saw, even in the mainstream, you know, it's PBS, Frontline, and I do think they do good work, but uh, I'm showing on the screen now, for those who are listening, this recent episode of Frontline that came out on August 10th called In the Shadow of 9-11, and it focuses on the, the so-called uh, Liberty, I think they were called the Liberty Seven, the men who were arrested in Miami, and it was it was promoted as like the sort of the first justification for the war on terror post 9-11. Like, look here, the Homeland Security is working. We caught some terrorists. And even though it is a 
mainstream report there, Frontline does do a good job of, you know, they don't go into the super deep stuff like, like yourself, but they do acknowledge the FBI's role in encouraging these men to pledge oaths to Al-Qaeda when these were, for one, they were in poverty. Uh, it, it took months and months of trying to goad them into participating in this and come meet my friend, come meet my friend, you know, he'll help you. Yeah. And just yeah, kind of stringing them along. Yeah, you said okay. hundreds of cases like that. In fact, and, you know, one of the things that it will never be fully investigated, but um, I actually met somebody at an academic, well, it was a memorial service, an, an academic, and he was he was not an Arab, he, he was uh, Iranian, and he was not a Sunni, he was a Shia. So he was, by, by definition, not somebody you would think would be part of Al-Qaeda, which was very anti-Shia, um, and he was, uh, it, it, he wasn't arrested by the FBI. They didn't bother to arrest him. There were about a thousand Muslims after 9-11 who were interrogated by the FBI, and that's the only word for it, were tortured by the FBI, just as part of their investigation. And he said so much that he, he was beaten so badly that he had blood in his urine. I'm not giving his name because he said that if he ever went public with this, this man is saying to me that he was threatened by the FBI. He wasn't supposed to tell anybody he'd been beaten by the FBI. And nobody knows how many Muslims, but I've seen printed estimates. There's a book about this. and There should be more awareness of it that maybe up to a thousand American Muslims in this country were uh, in, mistreated in this way and detained. No habeas corpus, by the way, that's, not, that's another feature of uh, continuity of government. One of the leading features of it is that you can detain, arrest and detain without, and there's no habeas corpus that you, that one of the, that's a protection that goes back to Magna Carta. I mean, that's not even an American protection in the law. That is in the British law system going back for hundreds of years. And it was and it will continue to be uh, waived in cases like this. Now, there is a degree of, there is a real problem here. And we have to accept, I think, some limitations on our traditional liberties. I just feel that right now that uh, there are no restraints at all and no knowledge at all. And so that really, uh, when you're dealing with a system, continuity of government, which has been authoritatively described as suspension of the Constitution, and then when we get a movement that I started was a, con a former congressman back when Obama was elected, to find out what COG is, and somebody in Congress who was head of the appropriate committee asked a question about it, and the whole committee asked to see what COG is. They were told that this committee of Congress doesn't have the authority to see this document, and it's a document that suspends the Constitution. Most Americans would agree that it would be prudent to have a plan to provide for the continuity of government and the rule of law in case of a devastating terrorist attack or natural disaster. A plan that provides for the cooperation, the coordination, 
and continued functioning of all three branches of the government. The Bush administration tells us they have such a plan. They introduced the little sketchy public version that's clearly inadequate uh, and, and doesn't really tell us what they have in mind. But they said, don't worry, there's a detailed classified version. But now they've denied the entire Homeland Security Committee of the United States House of Representatives access to their so-called detailed plan to provide for continuity of government. They say, trust us. Trust us, the people who brought us Katrina to be competent in face of a disaster. Trust us, the people who brought us warrantless wiretapping and other excesses eroding our civil liberties. Trust us. Maybe the plan just really doesn't exist, and that's why they won't show it to us. I don't know. Or maybe there's something there that's outrageous. The American people need their elected representatives to review this plan for the continuity of government. You can see that there's a problem here, and the problem has to be addressed. Absolutely. That's very well said. So the final question on 9-11 I wanted to ask you is, to kind of, I guess, recap, excuse me, recap a lot of the things that we've talked about. Uh, we're now at a point where nearly every week the corporate media is putting out, you know, press saying things that there are Americans who are anti-government or who are, you know, questioning COVID restrictions or questioning the war on terror or people who, you know, just generally question the government. And these would be people who, like myself, I would, you know, I don't, I don't think could easily fit into that kind of right-wing militia type category that the government is attempting to portray it as. Um, and we are now at that point where getting lumped into this category are people who don't want the COVID restrictions. My point with, with all these kind of labels and categories is that we are now at a point where with because of 9-11 and because of the now ramping up of the domestic phase of the war on terror, that pretty much anyone who opposes the government or the, you know, the, the, any mandates they might put forth, whether it's related to COVID-19 or anything in the future, as you said, under a continuum of government, this allows for arrest of the American people. It allows for, it allows for spying and all kinds of other measures. What, what do you, what do you believe is, is like, you know, the next phase for this? Um, you know, do you have hope that this is going to turn around or as we're reaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11, do you think it's just destined to continue on? Because as you said, we can't get proper investigations into 9-11, let alone continue of government, let alone, you know, January 6th commission. You know, these sorts of topics, they just they don't get the, the true investigations they deserve. We don't get to the truth. But the war on terror, the war against the people continues to march on. Well, uh, you, you use the phrase at one point, I think the, uh, there will be a ramping up of the war on terror. I think we have to wait and see. I think I, my own feeling about the condition of the nation right now is that it's a very confused situation and that uh, nobody knows very securely what's going to happen. Uh, my own top concern is, is different from yours. I think that, uh, I think that the, um, you know, after 9-11, they, they, they definitely did ramp up uh, domestic uh, surveillance and so on. And, uh, started doing using very inappropriate ways of breaking up demonstrations, sometimes totally peaceful demonstrations that were broken up with tear gas and, and batons and, and worse things. Well, one example was under Trump with the uh, what happened in, just outside the Capitol, the White House, and 
what June was it? The, uh, the, and the, at the end of a peaceful demonstration, the end of which Trump marched across with and held a Bible upside down in front of a church. Um, the that may be the future, but it may not be the future. I think I'm more worried of a future where Trump, to his credit, he 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 talked very roughly sometimes about fire and fury and so on. But essentially, as far as I can see, that the Trump administration was the first administration, really since uh, since Eisenhower where America did not invade some other country that had done nothing to justify being invaded. So I will say that good thing about Trump. And I think what I'm concerned is that that alarmed people who are worried about what they're going to call the post-Afghan syndrome and want to get America back into the business of invading small countries like Grenada so that we can get the war machine back into full gear. That's my top concern. But as I say, I'm not predicting that will happen. I'm saying this is a very confused time where the Republican Party is split almost in two, and the Democratic Party is split almost in two. And uh, there's talk that there might we might see a third party. This is very much like America just before the Civil War. And I certainly hope that we don't see in America another civil war, but there have been symptoms of uh, precursors of a civil war. And that's why I'm not totally opposed to seeing um, plans, even covert plans, to do, do something to stop America from breaking into a civil war. So I'm not going to make a prediction or I'm not going to characterize where we are now. I think it's unknown. And I'm not going to predict where it's going, we're going to go because I think one of the um, great things about America is it's so polymorphous that it's unpredictable. And you can't tell which force is going to dominate and come out. That was my problem with Marxists who always said, you know, America is uh, owned and run by a capitalist class and everything else serves their interests. And the capitalist class wasn't enough of a class to know its interests, and there was always indeterminacy in this country. I, By the way, I've, been, I've only been a short time in China, but I loved it when I was there. I've only been uh, three times always short in Russia, but I loved it there. But I wouldn't for a second want to live in Russia or China rather than here. No, I'm a Canadian, by the way. I have enough problems with this country that I've never sworn allegiance to it. I'm still just a, can a Canadian, uh, and I will swear allegiance to that country and no other. But uh, this is a country that I'm very happy to live in, and I, I consider the American Revolution a revolution that changed history for the whole world, not just for America, because it proclaimed for the first time that you swear allegiance to a document that embodies law rather than to a queen or, a, or whatever. And that was so amazing an improvement that 
Nowadays, even even North Korea has a constitution. You have to have a constitution since the American Revolution. Uh, this is the country I want to live in. We should not despair of it. We should make sure that we work to make it better. And uh, although uh, I have very little in common with people who deny the efficacy of a COVID vaccine, or some of them even denied for a very long time that we needed to worry about COVID. And those people, I think, are essentially crazy, but they might turn out to be useful allies. Who knows? Because who knows what's going to turn out to be the most threatening force in America of the future. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, this is Derek Bros with the Conscious Resistance Network. You can find all of our work at theconsciousresistance.com. Thank you for Mr. Peter Dale Scott for his time. Until next time, remember, you are powerful, you are beautiful, and you are free. 9-11 truth now and forever. Peace.